Well, brethren, I think we're all aware that the church of God often experiences challenges. Sometimes those challenges are doctrinal, and sometimes those challenges are on the church's teachings and traditions. Well, brethren, today I want to talk about a challenge in the latter category. The challenge refers to concerns, the challenge I'm referring to concerns the culture and format of our church services, what we're doing right now. Brethren, we may or may not have thought about it in those terms, but our church services have a culture. We're all participating in that culture right now. I don't need to describe it. Now, in the study of religion, church services generally have two approaches or two cultures, according to comparative religion studies. One is liturgical. That's a very heavily ritualistic culture that's very predictable, very organized, very rote. And then you have a non-liturgical culture, which is pretty unpredictable, very spontaneous, unorganized, disorganized in nature. So on one hand of the spectrum, you'd have liturgical, you'd have a Roman Catholic mass, very predictable. On the other end, you would have a Pentecostal service, extremely unpredictable. What's going to happen there? Well, brethren, our church service would actually be somewhere in the middle on the, of that spectrum, I believe. We're not as liturgical as a Roman Catholic mass, but of, obviously we're not as non-liturgical as a Pentecostal meeting or a tent meeting. But there have been some who have criticized our approach to church services. Some of the ideas associated with this challenge are our services should be more casual, a little more spontaneous, less organized. Our services should emphasize more music. Our services should encourage more congregational participation, maybe a few amens from the audience. Please don't do that while I'm speaking. Our services are man-made traditions that should be challenged and updated. Well, my purpose with this message is not to directly answer all these criticisms. People have their opinions, and that's fine. But I do think we need to be honest that those who make these criticisms are usually primarily advocating for ideas that come from the Protestant world, outside of the Church of God. For the past few decades, mainline Christian churches, overall, this is an overall trend you can read about, have transitioned to a very loose, more casual culture in their church services. And mainly, sometimes they're very honest about it, to, a, to appeal and attract young people or to appeal and attract the non-religious. And if you've visited any of the newer non-denominational churches, and they're all over this area, you'd find their format would resemble more of a mixture of a rock or a folk concert combined with a TED Talk. Uh, even traditional denominations, like the Methodists and other traditional churches, are going towards a format where they have two different services, uh, early traditional service and then a later contemporary service to appeal to different audiences. I think that's important to understand, but this message isn't really about what others are doing. What I want to do is take a look at why we have the culture we have in our services. Why do we have the general format that we have? Now, we know that the Bible doesn't give a detailed church service format to follow. It doesn't give us a bullet point list of do's and don'ts. And it doesn't give us a detailed record of what a New Testament church service was like. But the Bible does give principles. The Bible isn't silent on this topic. There are principles in the Bible. And as we go through the scriptures where these principles are found, I think we're going to see that the culture that we've developed in our church services is not just a man-made tradition. 
but it is based on principles, solid principles from the scripture. So that's what we're going to take a look at. So if you like titles, my title this afternoon is Scriptural Principles for Church Services. Scriptural Principles for Church Services. What does the Bible say about the culture and the format, the general format, for a church service in the church of God? Well, let's first look at one point. Let's look at our first point. This is very basic, but we have to establish this as the baseline. Number one, God's people must assemble. Church services are important. They are mandatory. I know this may seem like a given, but given the topic, we should establish this point. So please turn over to Leviticus 23, and we'll read verses 1 through 3. And we'll see that what's called here the Holy Convocation is an essential element of the Sabbath command. It's not just an optional. It's not just a, well, if we feel like it, we'll have services. Or it's a good thing to do. No, this is what God told us to do. Associated with the Sabbath is the Holy Convocation. But we'll learn something about that by reading this. We'll focus a little more on an element of it. Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 1. And the Eternal spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, The feasts of the Lord, the feasts of the Eternal, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. These are my feasts. So they're not just feasts. They're not just rest days. They're holy convocations. And then it begins, the first one is the weekly Sabbath, what we're doing right now. Verse 3, six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of solemn rest. Solemn, that's an interesting word. A little bit about the culture of the Sabbath. Solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of the Lord your God in all your dwellings. So we see here this phrase, holy convocation. The word holy there means hallowed, set apart by God. It's something to be set apart as different. So it's not just the Sabbath that's set apart by God, but the convocation is set apart. It's to be different from other convocations. It's a special, very sacred convocation. Convocation just means a public meeting, a gathering. So a holy convocation is is an essential part of the Sabbath. So we rest on the Sabbath, we don't work, and we assemble. But just that word should teach us something, the holy convocation. God's presence is there. And that's why we've developed a culture in the church of striving to conduct ourselves as if we're in God's presence when we're a part of the holy convocation. That's why we have a culture of of formality, of dignity in our services, because we believe we're in God's presence. His his presence is here. So in other parts of the scripture, it talks about holy conduct. So we especially are on are trying to practice holy conduct when we're in God's presence. So there is a certain dignity and formality that should be a part of our service. It's a part of the culture, and that's not a bad thing. Not being casual is a good thing when it comes to this con- this concept. Now, I don't want to spend too much on this point, but I think it's also important to note that any time you're going to have a convocation or a meeting, any kind of public meeting, there is one element that has to be included in it. And that is authority. There has to be authority. You can't have a, a common meeting, a holy convocation, without somebody determining, determining when that meeting will be held, where that meeting will be held, and what will happen when that meeting is held. So just by the very nature of, it says, a holy convocation, that implies there is an element of authority. Somebody has to make the decisions on how that holy convocation will operate. And we'll talk about that a little more in a few minutes. 
So God's people must assemble. So we've established that as the baseline. It's a holy convocation. God's presence is a part of it, and that that uh, has a lot to do with how we conduct ourselves when we're here. So let's now move on to the second point, the second principle about church service, really the first principle. Number two is church services should be peaceful and structured, not chaotic and spontaneous. We do have organized church services, and our services are, in a sense, very predictable. They're not chaotic. They're not spontaneous. Why is that? Why have we put that culture into the church? Well, turn with me over to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, because this is the most concentrated section of Scripture, one of the most concentrated sections of Scripture, that gives us principles on church services. Now, the main issues that Paul is dealing with in chapter 14 is the issue of tongues, the issue of speaking in tongues as related to the church service. He deals with that in the earlier verses of chapter 14. That's not our topic today. That's an interesting topic. But towards the end of chapter 14, well, starting in verse 26, he transitions more specifically and focuses on the church service. And he is addressing, really, a congregation that has gone off track when it comes to the church service. Now, my guess how this happened and why this happened is that there was possibly no professional ministry operating in there in the Corinthian congregation at this time. Paul and Apollos were in other, were probably over in Asia and Turkey. They were not there. So in their absence, if there wasn't a professional infrastructure already put into place with a professional minister kind of keeping things in line, uh, a very loose approach developed in their absence, a very loose approach. So as a part of this letter that he writes to them, Paul, I don't want to say takes them to task. In a sense, he does, but he gives guidance. Okay, we need, you've become really loose in your church services. We need to tighten this up and bring it together. So let's see some of the principles that he brings out here. Ch- chapter 14, verse 26. How is it then, brethren, Whenever you come together, this is talking about an assembly, when you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation. And then he says, let all things be done for edification, for building up. He's saying this doesn't build up. So everyone coming here with basically the services are an open floor and everyone can share what, whatever he feels is on his heart at that time. He's saying that, that is not edifying. Later he'll say this is, this is a culture of confusion and that shouldn't be. So he doesn't endorse this. He doesn't endorse this kind of open forum type culture for a church service. So he starts to address it and starts to encourage them, okay, bring it up, bring it in, tighten it up. Verse 27, if anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or at most three each in turn and let one interpret. So again, if you have another language, but there's nobody to interpret that language, don't say anything. It, it doesn't build up. There's no purpose for it. It doesn't serve any purpose in the service. Verse 28, but if there is no interpreter, let him keep silent in the church and let him speak to himself and to God. So, you know, he really puts some limits on this, this gift of tongues that was given at that time. So if there's no one to interpret, if it's not going to edify or help educate somebody, just better to be, be quiet. That shouldn't be a part of the service. And then, in verse 29, he gets into a very important principle that we're practicing today, that guides our church services today. Verse 29, let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge. 
Now, in this context, that word prophet doesn't mean somebody who's, who's foretelling the future. This means a person who's speaking under inspiration, a speaker, an inspired speaker. So let two or three speakers speak and let the others judge. Let the others listen and interpret and apply to themselves. Verse 30, but if anything is revealed to another who sits by, let the first keep silent. So don't just have people standing up and I have an inspiration, let me speak now. No, that's not the culture. Verse 31, for you can all prophesy one by one. So it's not to be this chaotic free-for-all where everybody's essentially speaking at the same time. No, one by one. There's a structure and there's an order that all may learn and all may be encouraged. Again, we'll talk about this later, but learn. That's the, that's the culture. You're here to learn. You're not just here to have some kind of experience. Verse 32, and it's a real, this is really important. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. So this is talking about the approach to speaking, that the speakers are to be in complete control of themselves. They're not to give themselves over to a trance. They're not to be kind of led by their emotions or by the spirit or by anything else. They are to be in control of their mind, in control of their speech, and well-prepared, obviously. Uh, A couple more translations bring that out a little better. The Phillips translation, which is a paraphrase, but I think it captures it here. The spirit of a true preacher is under that preacher's control. The spirit of a true preacher is under that preacher's control. So the preacher has control of what he's saying, what he's thinking, what he's teaching. The NIV actually does a good job too. It says the spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. So again, this is the whole principle of self-control. He talks, Paul talks about that later in Galatians 5, self-control. So we have two or three speak, and those speakers are to be prepared and under their control. Their mind is to be under their own control. Verse 33, he then connects the culture of the church services to the very nature of God. So the culture of the church is to represent the culture or the nature of God. Verse 33, for God is not the author of confusion. So by implication, he's saying you're operating in confusion. God's not a part of that. That's not a culture of God. That's not how God is. That's not how he thinks. That's not how he operates. God is not the author of confusion, but of peace but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. So the church of God's service is to reflect the character of God. God is not a haphazard God. He's not disorganized. He's not just spontaneous. He just doesn't decide, well, this is what I'm going to do now, but then I'll do something else later. No, God is is consistent. He's in control, and he is orderly in everything he does. And if you look at the history of God's direct workings, He creates things in order. He created the universe in an order. It just works like clockwork. When he organized Israel under Moses in the Old Testament, it was a very orderly structure that he he put into place. It wasn't chaotic. It wasn't wasn't loose. It was very ordered. That's his nature, and we're to reflect that nature. Verse 34, he then gives a principle. Let your women keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to be submissive, as the law also says. And if they want to learn something, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is shameful for women to speak in church. Now, again, the context is the church service. We could say from the amen to the amen. So generally, the principle is that 
the males are to conduct the service. They're to be the ones doing the speaking. They're to be, be the ones conducting the service. Again, from the amen to the amen. This doesn't mean women have to go to church and be silent the entire time they're at, at church services. They, they can fellowship. Obviously, that's the case, and they sometimes do special music. But the main conduct, the main uh, leadership of the actual church service, again, from amen to amen, should be the males. And then he says, verse 40, let all things be done decently and in order. Again, more the application of what he said in verse 33 about God's nature. So God is not the author of confusion, so be like him and do things decently and in order. So there should be structure. That word decently literally means properly, with propriety, fittingly. So if people criticize us on having structure in our services, again, that's what the scripture says, decently, with propriety, order, or, orderly. And then he says, in order. That word means in proper succession, in proper arrangement, with dignity, and orderly condition. Again, so Paul is saying, okay, you need to tighten this up and bring some order and structure. That's the culture you need to impose into the church service because, again, that reflects the nature and character of God. So that's all that we'll look at in 1 Corinthians 14 here, but I think it's really important because there are so many principles that have influenced how we've put our church service format together. So we, we have structure and format. It's not just spontaneous. It's not just casual. Our services typically feature two scheduled speakers who are, they should be in control of their minds and they should be prepared. It should be led by males and the format should be well organized and predictable. It shouldn't just be whatever we feel like doing when we get here. And really, if you look at verses 33 and verse 40, that really determines a lot of what we do in the culture of the church. Everything we do, not just the church service, should be done decently in order, again, because that reflects the character of God, and that's what we're trying to reflect in our lives. So there must be peace and structure in the church. It's not supposed to be chaotic and spontaneous. So now let's look at a third principle we derive from Scripture on the culture of our church services, and that is church services should have an emphasis on teaching and learning. Church services should have an emphasis on teaching and learning. Now, in recent decades, one of the trends in the, the Protestant community, just studying it from an academic perspective, and you can study this, is that a lot, as we've already said, they've gone a lot more spontaneous and a lot less organized and more casual, but a lot of the church services in the Protestant world focus on emotional experiences. They feature a lot of praise music, sometimes what's called testimonials or spontaneous group prayers. On the Pentecostal end, you'll have altar calls. Not all churches do that, but some of them do. Typically, in the Protestant world, the sermons are getting shorter and shorter and are usually about 15 to 20 minutes. And again, they very much resemble the format of a TED Talk, usually a very casual dress and kind of walking around and a lot of times are focused on more motivational principles. But is that the culture that the Bible outlines for the Church of God? More of a casual culture focused on experience. Well, let's turn over to the book of Nehemiah chapter 8. We won't spend too much time here, but let's take a look at Nehemiah chapter 8, because we actually were mainly focused on the New Testament at this point, but we actually have a very interesting insight into a service of the congregation, or you could say the congregation of Israel, Nehemiah chapter 8, and we'll just pick out a few things from this chapter. 
What was the center? When Nehemiah brought the people together, they're back in the area of Jerusalem at this time, observing there's a revival, they're observing the Feast of Trumpets. Probably many of these people had never even observed a Holy Day service before. But what was the culture? What was the main purpose of bringing them together as a holy convocation on this holy day? Well, we find that in Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 1. So we'll just bring out a few highlights. Again, the context is the fall of the year. We're in the, at the Feast of Trumpets. Now, all the people gathered together, so we have an assembly, as one man, unity, in the open square that was in front of the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So they bring out the Torah, the Pentateuch. They bring that out. Verse 2, so Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women. So notice, men and women are there. So women are a part of the assembly. When we read in Deuteronomy that all your male shall appear, shall appear before the Lord, by implication, the females are there too. In application, the females were there. So it wasn't just the men gathering together. Men and women were there, and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Verse 3, then he read from it, that's the law, in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday. So that's a pretty long service. But a lot of these people were probably hearing this for the first time, so they needed this. Before the men and women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. That's it's basically the equivalent of where Paul is saying, let, let two or more speak and let the others judge, let the others listen. So they're listening, they're listening to learn. They're paying attention to be instructed. Verse 5, skip to verse 5. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people, so he was on a raised platform that, that helped people see him, and he'd be, he'd be able to extend his voice over the crowd so people could hear. And when he opened it, the book, all the people stood up. And this is, we'll see, to pray. Verse 6, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, this is a prayer. Then all the people answered, amen, amen, while lifting up their hands. You know, I don't know if that's how, how far it says they lifted up their hands, not their arms. So they could have been somewhat like this. I'm not sure. And they bowed their heads. They bowed their heads as we do and worshiped the eternal with their faces to the ground. So bowing their heads. Now, this is one, one position for prayer. We know the Bible gives other positions for prayer, but essentially what we have here is an open prayer, a blessing over the service. So why do we have a blessing at the beginning of the service? Because, again, the principle we find from Scripture, that's, that's what they did, and by implication, most likely, the other services that were conducted in biblical times also opened with a prayer. Verse 8, so they read distinctly from the book, in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. So the whole purpose, they weren't just reading it, but they were also expounding on it. We could say expository preaching in a sense. But he was teaching, and the spirit of the prophet was subject to the prophet. He, he understood the content, and he was teaching it in an organized, structured manner. So there was reading, and there was teaching. It, essentially, you could call it a sermon or a Bible study. But the emphasis, again, on this service was education and learning. That was the culture. That's what they came together to do. Now, let's move forward to New Testament times. Was that the same culture that Christ instituted among his disciples, the closest thing to a church at that time? Well, let's turn to Mark chapter 1. What did Christ do when he attended church services? Mark chapter 1, and we'll look at verses 21 through 23. 
Mark 1, verses 21 through 23. We'll just pull out an important element of the example of Jesus Christ here. Mark 1, verses 21 through 23. Of course, when Christ observed the Sabbath, most of the times when he was in a city, he would observe it in the synagogue. That was church services for Jesus Christ. So Mark 1, verse 21, Then they, so Christ and the disciples, went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and taught. So he went to the synagogue, and what was the culture? What was he there to do? Teach, learning, education. Verse 22, And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So it wasn't a dry form of teaching. It wasn't overly academic. He taught with authority, and he also taught and compelled people to apply what he was teaching them. Now, looking at the culture of the synagogue, of course, that's another study, but it's interesting that the synagogue uh, usually was structured around a person who was considered the ruler of the synagogue, and he was the one who kept order and decency in the meeting. He was the overseer, so he would, he would choose and select what readings were to be done. He would select who was to speak, and he maintained order in the synagogue. So that was the general culture of the synagogue as well. There was, there was authority and there was leadership there to keep everything in order. And if we study the Gospels, we see that many of Christ's activities were also based on education. He went from place to place, and what did he do? He sometimes outside of the synagogue gathered people together, and he taught them. His ministry, the the literal body of Jesus Christ when he was on earth, was focused on education. That was the culture of his ministry. And he also commanded his church to be a teaching church. We may not think about it. Turn to Matthew 28, what we often call the Great Commission, in the Church of God, Matthew 28. We usually think about this section of Scripture as orders to preach the gospel to the world, and that's certainly the main thrust of it. But it also talks about the culture within the Church of God. When disciples are made, what is to be done to care for them? What's the culture among those disciples? Matthew 28, verses 19 through 20. Matthew 28, verses 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples... Again, he uses an educational term. Disciples means a student of the master. So make students, we could say. Go out and make students. Not just, not just believers, not just worshipers. Make students of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So again, that's what happens after the gospel is preached. People respond and they're baptized and then they come into the church. And what happens when they come into the church? What's the culture? Verse 20, teaching them. Again, another educational term, teaching, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So the culture that disciples are called into is a teaching culture. So we have a teaching culture. We're a teaching church because that was what our master directed us to be, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. So the culture of the New Testament church is primarily centered on education, And that remains the primary culture. And it's not just what happens in the church service, but it is a part of so many of our activities in the church, from life, hope, and truth, from our public proclamation, to our educational institutions like Foundation Institute, to activities when we have the Winter Family Weekend. There's usually always an educational component. Again, that's scriptural. That's the culture Christ 
put into his church. And if we read through the book of Acts, we don't need to do that. It's not needed to make this point, but throughout the book of Acts, what did the apostles do? They taught. They taught. They preached the gospel, and then they cared for the disciples by teaching. So we have a culture of education and learning in the church of God, and that's the main culture, the main focus of our church services. So let's now learn, move on to a fourth point. Fourth point, music. Music has an important role, but is not the central focus of the church service. As mentioned earlier, one of the trends in Protestant churches is a very heavy focus on music, essentially what's usually called praise and worship music. And a lot of that music, quite frankly, is based on the structure of modern pop or rock music. If you go and listen to it on YouTube, uh, that's essentially what it is. And in a lot of those services, again, not all, but a lot of them, music really overshadows the education. The musical element is really the primarily the primary drive, the focus, the culture of the service. And a lot of times, frankly, that music is d- done to emphasize emotions. I actually read a piece by uh, a person who used to work in the sound booth of uh, one of these big Protestant megachurches, and he had since left that job, but he described that they had gotten it down to a science that if they played a certain soft type of music and dimmed the lights in a certain way, they knew that donations went up when they passed the offering basket. So they actually could, could figure that out through science. So they knew how to use music and lighting to manipulate the emotions to get people to donate more. Very interesting. But anyway, but we've already seen that education is the central focus, but that doesn't mean music is an important part of the service. That does not mean that. So let's turn back to Matthew 26. Matthew 26. Obviously, music is a part of the culture of the church of God. It's a culture of God's way going back to the Old Testament. So just because music isn't the central focus of the service, that doesn't mean music isn't important. Now, what's really interesting is you study the examples of services and gatherings in the New Testament. You don't really find too much about music in relation specifically to the Holy Convocation or the Assemblies of God's people. That doesn't mean they didn't do it. That doesn't mean they didn't sing when they were there. It's just not mentioned. It's not highlighted very often. The only, the really, the most direct statement about a music with what's the closest thing to an assembly is in relation to Christ's final Passover before his arrest and crucifixion. We read that here in Matthew 26, verse 30. After the service, it says, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So there was a hymn that concluded the Passover service. And again, I think we can assume that this wasn't a one-time thing. They knew the hymn. They were very familiar with it. It was probably a part of their lives. So music was an element of that service, and by implication, it was most likely an element of the other services in the Church of God. And we know, going back to the Old Testament, music had a big part in Israel's history. Uh, God set up temple choirs for Israel's worship in the temple. the greatest king of Israel, David, was a musician, and he composed a whole inspired book of song lyrics, prayers set, which were meant to be set to music and that were preserved in the scriptures for us, and we still sing those today. So again, that's not to de-emphasize music. Let's turn to one more scripture along this line, Colossians 3, verse 16. It shows Paul talks about music. Now, he's not specifically talking about it in relationship to the Holy Convocation, here in Colossians 3. But he's still saying, 
music is an important tool. It's an important part of the culture. Colossians 3, verse 16. Colossians 3, verse 16. He says, Let the word of God dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So again, the direct context of these psalms and hymns and spiritual songs isn't directly the church service, but this, he, he, he says you know, it is an element of it. It is, it is an element of the Christian life. Church music plays an important part. And it is a tool. We know that music is a tool. It's a tool to praise God. That's how David primarily used music, to praise God. But there's also an, a, teaching to, a teaching element to it. You know, music should be educational. There should be depth to the content of the lyrics. And, and there's so much depth if you read the songs that, that David wrote. I mean, there are whole uh, long Bible studies you can do on those individual psalms that he wrote. So the, the psalms and songs in general, spiritual songs, should be a teaching tool. You know, and, and we sing many of David's psalms in church today. We already sang, sang at least one of them, as I, if I remember correctly, this, this uh, at the beginning of services. And, you know, and as we're singing those hymns, especially those ones that are derived, taken directly from Scripture, we should be thinking about them. Because when you're thinking about them, as you're singing them, that becomes a form of teaching, education, and Bible study. Because if those are the words of God, think about them. Don't just sing them mindlessly. So it is an element of teaching. But again, it's not the main focus of the service. But it is an important element. So let's now go on to a fifth and final principle about church services. The fifth and final principle we'll look at this afternoon is decisions have to be made and traditions established. Decisions have to be made and traditions established. As we've already seen, God's word gives a lot of principles about what the formal assembly should be like, but it doesn't always, it doesn't give a lot of explicit details. A lot of 1 Corinthians 14 is, is pretty detailed, but again, it doesn't give us a specific format, a rundown, that you follow these points and you check them off and that's how God wants the service. No, he gives us principles and then he leaves it up to the church to turn principles into policy. And that's what we've done over the years. The Bible shows us the big principles and then we have to turn those into practices or traditions. We, we saw that in the book of 1 Corinthians. Who was the one giving them the principles for how the service was to run in Corinth? It was Paul the Apostle. It was a person with authority, and he was establishing the order. So let's turn over to Titus chapter 1 and verse 5. Titus 1 and verse 5. We'll see here that this is how the, the church is to operate. You know, there are some that, that want to remove authority from the church of God. So there are, other, there are frankly, other groups that have removed authority, taken a more congregational model, model, but that's not the culture and practice we see in the New Testament. It's just not. Titus chapter 1, verse 5. Who sets the order for how the church conducts itself, the practices? Titus 1, verse 5. Paul is the apostle talking here to Titus, a younger minister under his, who's under his leadership. Titus 1, verse 5, For this reason I left you in Crete, so he left, leaves him with the Cretan congregation there, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, 
So Titus, the ordained minister, is to set and order the things that are lacking. So there were probably things that were lacking, similar to in Corinth with Crete. He said things are a little out of order. You need to set it in order. I'm giving you the authority to do that. And then he talks about creating a structure. And appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. So this is how you would maintain that order after Titus leaves and no other apostle is there. You build an infrastructure of, uh, we could say, a professional ministry to, to maintain that order so that as soon as Titus leaves, it doesn't degrade back into what was happening at Corinth or what may have been happening here in Crete that we don't have details of. So he says, again, set things in order. Make sure things are structured and in order. Make sure, and that it doesn't say church services here, but maybe that was a portion of it. Maybe church services in Crete were getting a little loose. And Paul says, you know, tight, Tighten that up, Titus. And then in verse, and then the second point, appoint elders in every city. Again, build a structure that then maintains that order, that maintains those practices moving forward so that, again, it doesn't just degrade into chaos again when the leading minister moves on to another area. And that leads us to a sub-point of this point that what you have when basic structures and formats are established based on principle what we have then becomes tradition. Now, sometimes tradition can be a negative word. Sometimes tradition can be negative because sometimes tradition, frankly, can be abused. And we read about the abuse of tradition in the Bible. There were a lot of abuses of tradition. Uh, the primary culprits in the New Testament would be the scribes and Pharisees who abused tra tradition very in a very, very gross way by ex putting tradition above biblical principle and biblical law in some, in some ways. And it was actually tradition sometime that contradicted the words of God. But true traditions, proper traditions, should be grounded in biblical principle. True traditions that are healthy and that are good and that should be maintained, they don't contradict or nullify scripture, and those kind of traditions are very healthy. So let's look at 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 15. This will be the last scripture we look at this afternoon. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 15. And we'll see here, again, proper traditions. Traditions grounded based on biblical principle. Again, you have principle. Those principles become policy by authority, and then they become traditions. And they should be maintained, again, if, if they're based on solid biblical principle. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 15. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 15. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you, have, which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. So there were certain traditions that were taught in the New Testament church. Uh, you know, probably some of those traditions came from the content we read in 1 Corinthians 14, but there were traditions that Paul was telling the Thessalonians, you need to hold fast to those traditions because those are good, healthy traditions. They bring order. They bring unity. They're good. They're healthy. Don't just cast aside tradition just because, well, there's not a specific verse that tells me to do that. No, if it's based on principle and it's good and it was established by leadership under the guidance of Christ, hold fast to it. It's not a bad thing. Traditions are good in the proper context. Again, when they're grounded on principle. And I think we could say that scripturally grounded traditions have two basic functions. Number one, they bring order and stability, and we see that's a theme that constantly comes up in these scriptures, order and stability. It's to be consistent. And number two, they build unity. 
And that's really it's something we need to think about. Traditions build unity. Without traditions on things the Bible isn't 100% explicit on, it would be up to every individual Christian or we could say every individual congregation to just decide for themselves how to do things, what they will do. And what would you get if that was the way things were done? Would you get a church that looks very different depending on where you go? You go one place and things are done one way and you go to another place and, oh, it's in a completely different culture, a different, completely, completely different way of doing things. But again, that's not the standard. That's not the standard of unity. So in the Church of God in modern times, we've developed traditions for the culture and format of church services. And those traditions have served the church well for decades and have brought a remarkable level of unity to a church that spans continents. I mean, we're a church that spans continents. We have people who speak multiple languages and live in multiple cultures around the globe. But when you go to a Church of God service, you essentially find people conducting those services in essentially the same way. So we're in Dallas, Texas, but if we flew across the globe and met with the Filipino brethren on the other side of the world next week, we would find essentially the same service. Completely different culture, but the same service, the same basic format. Now, there would be some cultural variations, obviously, but again, the same basic culture. And then if we, the next week, flew to Africa, we'd find the same basic culture. Latin America, same culture. Europe, same culture. Pacific Islands, same culture. Again, there's unity in the church that has been brought because of traditions, and that's a remarkable thing. That's a wonderful thing. That's a thing to be celebrated, not a thing to be criticized. The congregations in the church are primarily unified by the Holy Spirit of God, but also by biblically grounded traditions that have brought harmony of worship and practice. So to wrap this all up, brethren, we should be thankful that we have a format, a general format for services, and there are variations to our format. We're having one of them today, two split sermons. That's a little bit different, but that's fine. But the general format of our services are based on biblical principles. And I believe we could say the main pillar principles that our, deserve, that our services are designed to honor are these. Number one, services should be ordered and structured. So it's not a chaotic atmosphere. It's not a free-for-all. There's order and there's structure. They're consistent. Number two, they should be primarily educational in focus. So our services are primarily educational in their approach and culture. Number three, services should be based on scripturally grounded traditions established by the leadership of the church. And number four, services should bring unity to an international church. Christ said you would go to all nations and preach the gospel. And how do you unify all nations of the people who became disciples? Well, you have traditions. So brethren, I hope this message has helped us understand maybe a little better the why behind why we do things every week when we come together for Sabbath services. So to conclude, despite the opinions some may hold, again, the way we conduct services in the Church of God is not just a man-made tradition. It's not just a man-made construction designated and put together by out of the minds of human beings. No, our traditions are based on the solids, principles, and derived from the Word of God.